the the real test um, is what you do in the shadows, what you what you do when you think nobody's watching. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. I'm your host, Nicole Rebus. The work of the government has transformed to, the, to accord with an increasingly digitized world. How has that change in technology transformed espionage? On today's episode, we explored modern espionage, its evolution since the Cold War, and its role in cur- current foreign relations. We consider the future of espionage and international security as technology continues to advance and becomes increasingly accessible via the private sector. Joining us today on the podcast is Emily Harding. Emily Harding is Deputy Director and Senior Fellow with the International Security Program of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She joined CSIS from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, SSCI, where she was Deputy Staff Director. Emily, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So first to start us off, what is espionage and why do states pursue spycraft? Ah, espionage is a, a profession as old as time. Um, I'm actually sitting in my office right now and staring at a painting of George Washington, who was our first American spymaster. Uh, he was famous for during the Revolutionary War, trying to seed spies behind enemy lines and running a spy ring called the Culper Ring. Uh, so seriously, it's it's a long tradition for the United States of America to have espionage. When we talk about espionage, um, There is no one pure definition of it, but it really is trying to get hold of information that your enemy does not want you to have and doing it sometimes in a way that breaks that enemy's laws. So you're asking a person to spy against their own country. You are breaking in electronically and stealing secrets they don't want you to know. Today, more and more, we talk about open source intelligence, which isn't exactly espionage because it's information that's out there in the public, but you can glean a lot of interesting insights and knowledge from this information that's just there for the taking. It's just up to you to process that information in such a way that it becomes useful for national security. So I think the definition of espionage has expanded over the years, but the core piece of it is that it's a country trying to find out information that will help it in its foreign policy goals. Right, and you mentioned that the US has a long tradition of espionage, but what role has it historically played in foreign relations? Right, so there's there's an interesting discussion about what we call hybrid warfare. And if you can think about peace and war on a big spectrum, there's a you know peaceful relationship with solid allies, uh, like we have with, for example, the United Kingdom. And then there's a little bit up the spectrum where you're not fighting, nobody's shooting at each other, but you are maybe kind of suspicious of what's going on, or there's something that you think somebody might be hiding from you and you want to find out what that is. Also, a little bit higher up in that realm as we talk about hybrid warfare, this would be things like what the Russians did in 2016 to try to undermine our elections, and then all the way up to active conflict. Well, espionage could play a role in pretty much every phase. You know, we, we don't really spy on our friends, um, but we do try to find out what a potential adversary is up to. Certainly in the hybrid warfare, gray warfare zone, we want to try and find out what is the motivation behind what they're doing, what is the extent and the scope of what they're doing. And then all the way up into warfare, espionage and, and stealing secrets plays a key role in tactical advantage on the battlefield. So it really is something that that underpins all of foreign policy. 
the rules are also a little bit different. Um, you know, if you are a person in a military uniform, there are certain privileges protected, certain privileges that you are afforded, uh, certain protections that you are given if you're, say, captured by enemy forces. Uh, a spy has no such protection. Um, conversely, you know, if you have a group of uniformed military personnel and they show up inside a country, I mean, that could be interpreted as an act of war. There's kind of an unspoken rule in espionage that if you catch a spy, then that is not an act of war. That is not something that could lead to active hostilities. It might be awkward. Um, there might be some debates about whether or not you're going to own up to, to this person being yours and then what happens trying to get that person home um, if possible. But it's there's kind of a, an unwritten set of norms and rules in the espionage space where it's something that all countries acknowledge other countries do, um, and it's less escalatory than some other things that might happen. Right. And I want to come back to that uh, sort of these norms and um, rules to espionage. But I want to ask, how has global espionage and its role changed since, let's say, the Cold War? Yeah, well, so the Cold War was the classic height of espionage as you think about human sources doing very dangerous things and trying to smuggle bits of information across borders. Um, Post-Cold post War, the world got a little messier. Um, at the same time, we've seen tremendous technological advancements. So taking those two pieces, I think on the, the messy piece, it's not the spy versus spy cartoons, you know, you see with the, the two little guys who were facing off and trying to undermine each other around every corner. It's much more um, a fluid picture of alliances and joint agreements and ways that countries' interests align to work together on particular problems. And then, you know, we have seen threats pop up that people didn't anticipate in the middle of the Cold War. Um, so there's a wider variety of potential threats out there too. Some of the places we're trying to spy on are what you would consider closed societies, a lot like the Soviet Union was. Uh, we consider in the intelligence community hard targets, places like China, like North Korea, uh, Russia to a certain extent, Iran as well, um, Burma, like a lot of these denied environments where there's an authoritarian leader who's really trying to keep a lid on any and all information. And it's hard to gain insight into what's going on those places. The technological front is the biggest sea change. Um, it was once upon a time that, you know, if you were taking pictures from a spy satellite, the only way to get those pictures back was to literally drop a canister back into the atmosphere and then to try and find it and pick it up and develop the pictures. It could be hours and hours and hours before you can get insight into what was going on inside your enemy's territory. Today, I mean, it can be near instantaneous. The movement of information around the planet is just so fast. Um, on top of that, we also have new capabilities. We can talk quite a bit about cyber conflict and cyber espionage and the way that computer network operations can provide insight into your adversary's intentions, into their capabilities. Um, but they can also be you know, a bit of a flashpoint in a way that some of these other technologies are not. Right, and on that note, uh, what are other are there new methods that are employed in global spycraft? Um, and like you said, you mentioned there are some tools that are sort of not relevant anymore. Are there any other tools that have become obsolete? Yeah, so there are lots of new tools. I think the ubiquity of information is the real game changer. 
um, back in, let's say, the 1950s or 1960s, it was reasonably easy to construct a new identity for an individual. You know, you took a picture, you plastered that picture into a passport, uh, you gave them a cover story, a cover job, you maybe gave them some kind of light disguise, and you sent them on their way into a dangerous mission. Well, today, uh, basically any border guard can look at that passport. And first of all, a lot of them have biometrics built in. So that's an initial challenge. They can also look that person up on social media. I mean, if you say that you are a 30-year-old um, person who works for the State Department and you've worked for the State Department for the last you know, five years, where is your social media profile showing all the places that you've been posted and the pictures that you've taken? Um, if you even more so say that you are working for some private sector organization and, you know, you do not have a Twitter account that reflects your the name on your passport or you do not have a Facebook account that shows what you've been up to for the last 15 years, then that's instantly suspicious for somebody who's manning that border. It's just very hard to construct an artificial human today in a way that it wasn't a few years ago. So the intelligence community has to think very differently about how they do things that you would assume are pretty low tech, like human operations. Who do you send to meet an asset? How can you guarantee that that person won't be followed? How can you guarantee that that's a trusted individual for your asset to meet with? It's, it's a very difficult challenge, and I think it's going to be a difficult challenge for the intelligence community for, for decades to come. Um, on top of that, though, I mean, there are all kinds of fun toys that the IC does have as part of this technological revolution. And the flip side of it being harder to conduct offensive operations, that it's also harder for our adversaries to conduct offensive operations. So our defense has gotten a lot better, too. Um, and I kind of I want to circle back to what you were mentioning earlier about norms. Um, is digital espionage unlawful conduct under international law? Or is it accepted um, as a part of a given country's national security strategy? Uh, yeah, so this is um, a hot topic. Uh, my colleague here at CSIS, Jim Lewis, has done a lot of really excellent work on digital norms, um, international law surrounding digital norms. It's, it's kind of a funny concept, international law, because while it exists, um, there's not a lot of enforcement mechanisms. So to your question about digital activity, that kind of activity is certainly illegal inside the borders of any particular country. You know, in the United States, it's illegal for you to break into a computer system that you don't have access to, you don't have authorized access to. Um, but on an international front, what are the real implications of that? If you are the GRU, one of the Russian intelligence services, and you are sitting in Moscow, and you are attempting to hack into the Pentagon, Sure, that's illegal in the US, but not like the US can reach into Moscow and punish you for it or arrest you for it or try you for it. Um, we've seen a whole slew of investigations and indictments of various foreign individuals who have conducted cyber espionage or cyber operations. And very, very rarely do any of them ever show up on US soil for an actual trial. So, I mean, illegal depends on who you ask. And how do states distinguish electronic intelligence connection, collection or data collection with cyber warfare? And is it necessary to make that distinction? So this is, I think, a very difficult question. And one of those areas where 
actions are easy to misinterpret. Um, as I was talking about earlier with espionage, if you send a bunch of soldiers onto somebody else's territory, then that could be seen as an act of war. If you catch a spy on your territory, then it's pretty clear that what they were doing was they were spying. It was not the precursor to you know, armed conflict. With cyber operations, it's much more difficult to tell at times because the same access can be used to either collect and extract information or potentially to plant some kind of malware um, or some kind of additional access that would allow for disruption or destruction um, in the case of an adversary and in a precursor to war. So you may realize, let's say, again, you're the Pentagon and, oh my gosh, the GRU has a foothold in all of these systems. What does that mean? Does that mean they're just collecting information? Does that mean they're planning an information operation? Does that mean that they are planning armed conflict and they're looking to disable systems in advance of that armed conflict? And not to get too technical about it, but sometimes you can tell based on what systems they are in, um, but sometimes it's a lot harder. And that's one of those times when trying to interpret an adversary's intent is both critically important and also very difficult. Um, and with some of our adversaries, you know, back in the Cold War, we had the red phone where you pick up the phone and say, you know, let's let's not do this exchange of, of fire that might turn into a nuclear war. Um, there's a similar capability when it comes to cyber, um, but it is less well-practiced. And I think that trying to communicate about intent is gonna be a critical skill for policymakers for the next few years. And then building some of these norms and rules, even if it's not an enforceable international law, I think having an understanding of these are the limits of cyber operations and how far they should go is going to be useful for, frankly, the whole globe. Um, we have ransomware attackers that are going after hospitals, and that's just unconscionable. It shouldn't be happening. We have folks who are, you know, maybe moonlighting for foreign intelligence services, doing things like taking down the colonial pipeline. Um, business. So that that kind of thing, again, critical infrastructure, this is not, this should not be on the table for either espionage or operations. And I think that countries are going to have a hard time coming up with enforceable mechanisms for those kinds of capabilities, but we have to try. And um, I know you were talking about uh, closed societies earlier and how some things are easier, some things are harder now when it comes to espionage. Uh, but are there states today that are especially capable of digital espionage and what qualities set them apart? Yeah, sad but true. I mean, <laughs> we, we, the United States government, are very good. Uh, for any of your listeners out there who are thinking about a potential career in data science or in computer science, I would strongly encourage you to take a hard look at the United States government, um, NSA in particular, a bunch of mad geniuses over there who can do truly amazing things. Uh, and you don't get to do it anywhere else. Uh, you can only do it legally anyway, um, working for, for the US government. And you'll never hear the stories, at least I hope you never hear the stories because if you do, something's gone horribly wrong. Um, but those guys do really amazing work. Uh, we're not the only ones though. Uh, the Russians have always been very good at this. I mean, the very first identified um, hack, if you will, was a Russian operation. Uh, if you haven't read the, the Cuckoo, that's a really good one where you can read about that particular operation and how the, the researcher uncovered it. So the Russians um, are really very good at 
what they do. They're kind of interesting because they sometimes are very sneaky and other times don't seem to care if they get caught. Uh, some of that I have to attribute to just general tradecraft sloppiness, but a lot of it, I mean, I think they they think that there won't be repercussions for some of the things that they're trying to do. And so they don't care as much. But some of the Russian intelligence services are very sneaky, very good at what they do. Um, China is really becoming a powerhouse in this area as well. I'm sure that you and your listeners have heard a lot about the Chinese government breaking in and stealing copious amounts of information um, from American government, from American businesses. Uh, they've gotten very good at that espionage, not only for state benefit, but also for economic benefit, uh, which is a, you know, not the way that, that we in the West tend to think about how espionage should be used. But there are some other folks who are sort of up and comers. Um, the Iranians did some activities in the 2020 election that were, I wouldn't exactly call sophisticated, but they did make a bit of a splash. Um, and that was hardly their first rodeo. They had done some things with against the Saudis, um, against US targets, and they, I think, are really trying to grow that capability. And then the North Koreans, of course, made huge headlines by breaking into banks and stealing millions and millions of dollars. Um, so they they have their niche as well, but I think I'd probably put them a notch below the Iranian government. I also can't leave the Israelis out of this. Um, they have a really well-developed tech sector. And because so many of the folks in the Israeli tech sector also kind of learned their craft working for the Israeli military, there's a very close connection between the two. Um, and they are also extremely good at what they do. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the West may have a different conception of how espionage should be used. And so I want to ask, how have privacy and human rights laws constrained digital espionage efforts of intelligence agencies, especially in democracies? And does it pose a serious disadvantage? I wouldn't call it a disadvantage because we wouldn't want to cast aside those values that make us who we are in democratic society for the perceived advantage of a, an espionage win. Um, I'll tell you a little story. So when I, I used to work on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and when I left the committee, I packaged up all of my classified documents and I sent them off to the archives. And as I took my box and I put it on the shelf, uh, I looked around at the the other archives that were in the room and I asked my my escort, you know, hey, do you mind if I kind of poke around for a minute? I want to look around. And they were like, sure, go ahead, you know, look at what you want to look at. And you could walk back through history and see a lot of the oversight mechanisms the committee had done in the past. You could see some of the big scandals that had taken place. And then you go all the way back to the late 1970s, which was when the United States Congress decided that espionage had gotten way out of hand and had abandoned some of those morals and values and really needed to be brought back, um, be brained in. I think that's the way to put it. So you can kind of see that history as you walk down the aisles of the archives. And it was fascinating to me as somebody who had just come out of, of committee service. Um, but it was also amazing as an American because you can see the extent to which we try and impose norms and, and values and rules and laws on something that is inherently illegal in what you're trying to do. And it speaks to the way that the people in the United States intelligence community believe in mission and believe in defending America and defending democracy. 
not at any cost, not for pure power, but because, you know, you believe in who we are as a country and what we want to do. So I think that the, the, the real test um, is what you do in the shadows, what you, what you do when you think nobody's watching. Do you adhere to those human rights norms? Do you take care of people to the extent that you can uh, and try and do right by them, even when you know that no one's ever going to know which way you did it? Uh, and we discussed digital spycraft in the context of interstate espionage. However, do these technologies have implications domestically? And are, though, are there concerns about these technologies, you know, in terms of personal privacy? Sure. So this is where I can totally get on my soapbox about things like TikTok. Um, <laughs> there, there's a big difference between the way democracies approach collecting data on millions and millions of people and the way autocracies do. Um, China has zero qualms about sucking up all of the information that it possibly can and then storing it for later use or using it to keep tabs on a population. The way they treat their domestic population, going back to that human rights piece, is very much trying to keep control, keep tabs, keep eyes on any potential for free thinking or unrest. Um, in the United States, on the other hand, I mean, everything about the way we do surveillance is geared towards protecting United States persons. And, you know, the, the amount of lawyers that we have that are reviewing everything that the spy agencies do, the deep adherence by folks like CIA and NSA to being outward facing, looking out into the world and not domestically. These all speak to some of the excesses of the past and a belief that if you are an American citizen, if you are present in this country, you are afforded protections and freedoms that authoritarian governments around the world do not afford their own people. Um, the FBI is kind of a, an interesting case because they do have this domestic authority, but they're at their core a law enforcement organization. And there are very strong restrictions on what they can do as far as domestic surveillance. So one of the things that was interesting about the way the Russians went about um, attempting to undermine the 2016 elections was that they knew that we do not monitor our internal networks. The FBI doesn't just keep an eye on internet traffic as it flows around. Uh, the FBI is explicitly prohibited from interfering with First Amendment protected speech. So the Russians came in and used US domestic cyber infrastructure to conduct a lot of their operations. They posed on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube as American citizens. And they said things that were controversial, but certainly not illegal. So in some ways they used our freedoms against us. Um, and there was some talk at the time, and I think still about should there be more authority to surveil domestic networks. But I think the, the general consensus is that no, um, we believe that freedom is what makes us more fundamentally strong in the long term. So that's what we're more interested in preserving. Right. And you mentioned that there, there are these safeguards that exist in the U.S. to protect its citizens. But what about the rest of the world? Like you, you mentioned in authoritarian countries specifically, uh, those protections don't exist. So what should or can the international community do? Yeah, well, so if you're talking about the authoritarian countries that are out there and trying to monitor very tightly their own populations, 
there are a lot of independent organizations out there who do things like try to get accurate information into closed societies. Uh, from the highly tactical, like with the current war in Ukraine, at the early part of the war, there were some efforts to send Ukrainians the phone numbers of just average Russian people. And they would pick up the phone and call and say, hey, do you know what your government's doing inside Ukraine? Um, and, you know, I, there's no data, I don't think, on whether or not that worked, but it sure was a very direct person-to-person -person way to get information into a closed society. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, telegram groups or um, other encrypted messaging apps that people are using to pass accurate information inside uh, authoritarian governments. I know that China has attempted to create what they call the Great Firewall, um, the, the wall around all of the internet access for their people, so that if you do something like search for Tiananmen, a reference to the Tiananmen Square massacre, that you are immediately, you know, blocked and uh, flagged. So I think that. You know, as far as what people can do, keep speaking the truth, <laughs> keep speaking out against human rights abuses, um, talk about what we are allowed to do in a free society so that people who do not live in a free, free society can imagine something better. I think there's some places around the world where you see democracy in a bit of a retreat and you see a rise of some authoritarian tendencies. And those places, it's especially important to keep talking about the benefits of freedom, to keep talking about holding a government accountable to its people, um, and to try to spread spread those values before they disappear. Right. And just to finish the episode off, I wanted to ask you about how technological innovation is occurring at a breathtaking pace today. And you mentioned how um, <clears throat> the you mentioned how the technical technological innovations that have happened in the past decades have completely transformed espionage, but what are the implications, um, or what implications would the further maturity of AI technology and machine learning have on espionage? And is the U.S. prepared to not only utilize these tools but also defend against foreign governments that might choose to employ these tools? Yeah, it's a great question and one that many papers have been written on. Um, so I think the, the short answer is that yes, AI ML is going to dramatically change espionage and especially analysis uh, in the intelligence world. And that no, the US government is not doing a fabulous job trying to incorporate these capabilities. Um, there's a lot of really boring, wonky reasons why the government has been slow. I think the, to sum those up, um, over time, the government Congress have put into place regulations that are meant to limit the potential for abuse of government power, limit the potential for corruption in government. So like somebody steering a contract to a buddy of his and then getting a kickback. Uh, those are things that happen in other countries all the time and that you know, the U.S. and Europe and other Western leaning countries have tried to minimize um, because they really can be toxic to the health of a government. But the downside of all of these regulations, of course, is that it slows down decision making. It slows down the ability to bring capabilities into the government. Now, when you're buying an aircraft carrier, that's kind of okay. Like if things move slowly, it takes a long time to build an aircraft carrier anyway, so all right. On the other hand, if you're talking about AI ML capabilities, those are so quickly moving and the, the iteration on those kinds of technologies is so fast 
that if you write a contract for an AI ML capability in year one, that capability might not show up in the building until year three, let's say. And then the state of the art has moved so much from the time you wrote the contract, the technology is already overtaken by events. So the government has to get better at incorporating technology and updates to technology into its regular systems. But again, you want to do so in a way that doesn't ignore the, the values we put in place about trying to prevent corruption, trying to um, make sure that the government is transparent about the, the money that it's spending and where it's spending it. As far as the first piece of it, though, the changing espionage, changing analysis, if you look at the combination of high capacity computing and AI ML capabilities, um, the combination of those two is going to be a game changer. You can take huge amounts of information, you can process it quickly, and you can use an AI ML system to draw insights and information out of that huge amount of data and then flag that for an analyst. So just to use an example, let's imagine the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> it's a very large space uh, with not a lot of land. Uh, however, we have satellites. We know this. There are plenty of companies out there like you know, Planet Labs or Hawkeye 360 um, who have private sector satellites just flying over the Pacific all the time and taking pictures or collecting information. Those pictures, that information is more than any human could ever look at in a lifetime. However, an AIML system can learn, in quotation marks, what a warship looks like as opposed to a fishing vessel and can look at all of those images and say, hey, hey, analyst, yo, look over here. We think this is an unusual pattern. Take a look at it and see what's going on. And then the analyst, rather than spending hundreds and hundreds of hours staring at blank blue squares, can look at this square over here where, oh, look at that. That's a combination of Chinese warships. What are they up to? And that kind of capability is going to provide early warning on a scale that our forefathers only could have imagined. And that's very exciting. Um, we just have to get good at several things. We have to get good at building that technology, at filtering out some of the bias that can be inherent in that technology. And then we have to be able to explain it. You don't want to go to the president and say, hey, look at this great picture that my computer found. <laughs> you need to be able to explain why that picture came up why the computer did what it did so that the president, the, the cabinet can make the best decisions about what to do with that information. Um, this is something we're all going to be sorting through. So to, to your listeners who are in school right now, as you exit school, think about how this is going to change your life. And if you come work for the government, which I highly encourage you to do, uh, think about how the government could do better at incorporating all of these things. Well, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And I hope you all have a fabulous school year. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.